From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The concern among, you know, Westerners and Western Christians who wanted to push for religious freedom in the Middle East, it wasn't so that necessarily that everyone could be whatever religion they wanted. It was so that they had more of an opportunity to proselytize (laughs) and to spread their version of the truth. And I think we have to recognize that is often the agenda that unfortunately underlies some of what I would call like the religious freedom industry in Washington, D.C. in particular. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University and is an associate of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University's Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. She was a Fulbright Scholar in 2013, and she's the author of Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic, which we have talked about here on the show. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Well, Jordan Denary Duffner, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David, for having me. So I want to start our conversation at a point a couple of years back that you mentioned more than once, actually, in your book, Islamophobia. You and your husband are out shopping for groceries and you run into a priest that is in your acquaintance, a priest of a parish where you had worshipped a couple of years before this event, and you get into this conversation, just a casual conversation, while you're getting groceries, and the priest is getting groceries, and the priest says, and what do you do for a living? And your answer creates a moment of some friction. And I think for my listeners, it will help for you to explain both what you said about what you do and what the friction was that you encountered from this priest. Yes. So I explained to the priest that my job was to research and to study Islamophobia or anti-Muslim prejudice. And he immediately had this visceral reaction where he pulled his head back. And I don't remember if he crossed his arms, but it was the equivalent of something like that and, and closed off and then proceeded to basically justify what I could tell were very oppositional feelings towards Muslims, basically talking about how groups like ISIS were the face of Islam or the core of Islam and effectively downplaying the the severity and the problem of Islamophobia, which is a real one. And it was it was a disheartening conversation because this is someone who was a spiritual leader, someone who had led the parish community that I had been involved in, and yet was unable to see how the values that I feel our Catholic faith teaches being lived up to by this kind of oppositional attitude that he had towards Muslims. And this might be a good point to give a definition to this term that you've just used, Islamophobia. And in in your book, you start out and you say that Islamophobia in many cases is a bias against a perception 
of Islam. And I wanted to ask you about this emphasis on the perception, because it sounds like your encounter with that priest, you were in a conversation where you weren't really comparing facts with facts, but you were comparing your studied expertise in Islam against what sounded, at least from the way that you described it, from a very kind of perceptive or perceptional approach to Islam, where I feel like this is what Islam is. Now, that's my way of saying it, not yours. So how would you say it differently? How would you correct what I've just said in terms of that exchange around perception? Yeah. So first I can share the the definition of Islamophobia that I give in the book, which is prejudice and discrimination towards people based on their perceived affiliation with Islam or Muslim. So that's a mouthful. And what does it mean? I include a few things in there. I'm thinking both about the way people think and feel about Muslims, the ideas they have about Muslims, which kind of gets to the point that you were talking about. And then also the concrete ways that Muslims are mistreated. And like you said, oftentimes Islamophobia is based on perceptions or stereotypes that people have about Islam and Muslims. And the most common ones are this notion that Islam is an, an inherently violent religion, that oppression towards women is a natural part of Islamic religion, that Muslims are intent on spreading their faith and their way of life over the entire world and changing Western society, that they're barbaric and backward and all these sorts of stereotypes that have also been used to characterize lots of other groups throughout history. And so Islamophobia is basically treating all Muslims as if the stereotypes are true, basically, that if Muslims are, you know, violent and, and, and bad people, that we should treat them poorly. But as you allude to, this doesn't match reality. The stereotypes that we have about Muslims, while they may sometimes seem natural because of the way Islam is covered in the media, they don't match who the vast majority of Muslims are. And this is one of the things that you point out in the f sort of first part of your book, Islamophobia. You look at the demographics and you say this perception that we have that all Muslims come from the Middle East, that all Muslims are Arab speaking. You actually show that is not the case and that of the billion plus Muslims that are on planet Earth with us right now, there's a wide variety of backgrounds, of languages, of skin complexions, all these sorts of things. What is it that makes that perception and that connection with Middle Eastern Arab speaking, what makes that so sticky? What makes it persevere so much in particularly the Western mindset? Yeah, I think there's a lot of historical factors that are involved. I think the United States and other Western powers have been very involved in, in Middle Eastern context militarily or in terms of other forms of imperialism. But I think there have also been specific moments in the history of Muslim-Christian interaction in the last, let's say, 50 years where the Middle East has been front and center. We can think of the Israel-Palestine situation or the Iran hostage crisis and the Islamic revolution in Iran in the late 1970s and the early 80s, this perception of the Middle Eastern terrorist became just front and center in the American and in the Western psyche. And people don't have an awareness of the fact that the most populous Muslim majority country is Indonesia, followed by Malaysia and followed by a number of countries that are not Arabic speaking or are not in the Middle East that are actually in Asia. But the point that you made also circles back to part of the definition of Islamophobia that I that I meant to speak to, which is that people who are not Muslim often get caught in the crosshairs of Islamophobia too, precisely because they quote unquote look Muslim. This stereotypical image of 
what we think a Muslim looks like, brown skin from a particular part of the world, maybe has a beard in the case of women, maybe wear a headscarf. People who fit that mental picture are sometimes caught in the crosshairs of this discrimination. So as I tell a number of stories in the book where those of the Sikh faith or Arab Christians or other individuals from South Asia or from the Middle East have been targeted in Islamophobic attacks, even though they're not Muslim. And yeah, it it just goes to show that this kind of prejudice that many of us in the West have towards Muslims affects a huge swath of people even beyond the Muslim community. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jordan Denary Duffner. She's been on the show before to talk about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. A moment ago, you talked about the perception of Islam that spills over into attacks on those that are not of the Muslim faith, but who have markers, appearances that that are associated with the Muslim faith, so brown skin or headscarves or things like that. But you also make a connection in your book, Islamophobia, about the fact that this kind of pattern of being against a certain type of religious expression, particularly a visible religious expression, is nothing new. And you actually connect it back to anti-Catholic bias that has happened in years past. I wonder if you could help to make some of those connections for my listeners. Absolutely. So I grew up in Catholic, a predominantly Catholic community in the Midwest. I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, even though I live now outside of Washington, D.C. And growing up, I had no idea many Protestant Christians and others in the United States had held negative views of my community, and particularly my ancestors who would have emigrated, in my case, from Italy uh, a few generations back. And as I was in college and then doing my research with the Bridge Initiative and in my career, I realized how the kinds of stereotypes that we hear about Muslims today are basically just repackaged versions of the same kinds of tropes that were leveled against American Jews, American Catholics, and then many other many other newcomer or immigrant groups to the United States. One of the things that we did several years ago at the Bridge Initiative was that we found a bunch of quotations from decades past, but also in the present that talked about Jews and Catholics and Muslims in the United States. And we took out the identifying information that connected these statements to those specific groups, and then put together a BuzzFeed quiz and asked people, okay, guess which of these tropes was leveled against which community? And the point of the quiz was that you can't get these right, because all of these stereotypes have been leveled against each of these communities. Catholics were considered oppressive to women and that we were going to try to subvert the U.S. Constitution and the country and to institute papal law or that sort of thing. And the same sorts of things we hear said about Muslims today. We can think, for example, and I talk about this in the book, the whole national fervor that was stirred up around quote unquote, Sharia law and this claim that Muslims wanted to impose this barbaric code of law across the United States and were doing so by getting involved in government and getting involved in civic action in other ways. And I think one one thing that I tell people a lot when we're trying to combat these sorts of stereotypes that are directed at Muslims is that we don't necessarily need to combat or have all the the facts about what Sharia law really is, or we don't need to be an encyclopedia on Islam. But what we can do really effectively, I think, is to point out that these 
smears and stereotypes have been recycled over and over again to escape groups that are new. And when we demonstrate that that has been a pattern in American history, I think that's almost more effective than just giving people the details about what Sharia law really is. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but I want to make sure that it's clear to my listeners, your relationship with the Bridge Initiative. What is the Bridge Initiative and uh, what is the work that you've been doing there? Yeah, so the Bridge Initiative was founded six or five or six years ago now to study the problem of Islamophobia. It's based at Georgetown University. And the goal really is to provide the public with accessible, relevant information about this form of discrimination that targets Muslims. I jokingly say sometimes that then candidate and President Donald Trump in some ways did our job for us because during that time, he mainstreamed and normalized Islamophobia so much that many Americans for the first time actually realized that Islamophobia was a problem. And so I am still affiliated with the, the Bridge Initiative now full-time. I'm, I'm working on my PhD but I worked there for a number of years full-time before that, writing fact sheets, putting together informative videos, writing articles that were drawing attention to the different facets of Islamophobia. One of the things that the Bridge Initiative has done a lot of is draw attention to what many of us call the Islamophobia network or the Islamophobia industry, which is this cadre of bloggers and commentators and authors and think tank heads who have really gained a foothold in American public life and who help to really normalize a lot of these stereotypes about Muslims and who make a lot of money in this career that's devoted to maligning Muslims. So that's one of the things that, that we've tried to draw attention to. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, and she's an associate of the Bridge Initiative, also at Georgetown University, in their Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. She's a 2013 Fulbright Scholar, and she's the author of Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic, which we've discussed here on the show before. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, and she's an associate of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University's Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. We talked to her before about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Well, 
I'm a good deal older than you are. I grew up in the 80s and really came to political consciousness at the end of the 80s, right as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And there was a commentator doing a spoken word tour at college campuses that I happened to hear around that time. And this commentator said, what we're going to do is we're going to switch from a fear of the Russians, a fear of the Soviets, and we're now going to have a fear of terrorists. Watch out. There are terrorists instead of watch out. There are communists. And the, the thesis of this commentator was that this is a very convenient political ploy to create a ginned up enemy that can then be utilized to both subtend wars, but also to begin to feed into exactly what you were saying before the break, this kind of Islamophobia industry, this kind of anti-terrorism industry. So I'd love to, to hear from you about the kind of manufactured aspect of Islamophobia. How does it play into the kind of ideology of America that has always been there, this kind of us against them, we've got the enemy that we've got to defeat, and it's a matter of God and country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of readers will come to the book aware of some forms of Islamophobia, really blatant things like hate crimes against Muslims or mosque vandalisms, arsons, assaults, those sorts of things. But I think people are still pretty unaware of uh, more institutionalized or government-sanctioned forms of Islamophobia and the ways that's connected to both domestic and foreign policy. One of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about in the book is the war on terror that was inaugurated by the Bush administration after September 11th. I mean, basically 9-11 and, and those horrific attacks were used as an excuse to go after not just Muslim-American communities, but also Muslims abroad. We not only had the invasion of Afghanistan, but also the invasion of Iraq, where potentially a million Iraqis were killed as a result of that. And it's, we can't separate that from Islamophobia. I think it's part and parcel of Islamophobia because what an Islamophobic kind of mentality does is it, it dehumanizes Muslims. It turns other people into a threat that we then see as worthy of, quote unquote, retaliating against, even though we might be the ones who are often doing the aggressive violence. One of the examples I give in the book is of public opinion polling data that was done on Americans' opinions of Islam and violence in the years after 9-11 and up to our present. And there are three distinct points where the, a majority of Americans say that Islam is more violent than other religions. Which I, I think that pollsters asking these sorts of questions are being a little bit disingenuous in the first place because it, it contributes to this notion that religions at their core either motivate or don't mo motivate violence, which ignores a host of you know other reasons why people do violent things. But leaving that aside, you know, to my surprise, when I looked at this data, Americans had this view of Islam and violence not right after Muslims had committed terrorist attacks against people in the United States. It wasn't right after 9-11. It wasn't right after the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. It wasn't right after the Fort Hood shootings, which were committed by a Muslim in 2009. Instead, it was in the lead up to American wars or incursions abroad in the Middle East. It was basically when the government and corporate media interests and others were drumming up the cause for war. It was in 2002 before the incursion into Iraq. It was during and in the lead up to the troop surge in Iraq in 06 and 07. And then again, when President Obama was basically trying to get the American public to go along with his idea of 
invading Syria against and the war there. And so it just goes to show that often these Islamophobic attitudes are politically expedient and can also pad the pocketbooks of weapons companies and other people who have an interest in conflict. Well, and this speaks to something that you bring up at many points in your book, Islamophobia, and that is you just said that maybe a lot of people for the first time really saw blatant Islamophobia in the rise of President Trump and things like the Muslim ban. But as you just pointed out in your answer, this has been going on for decades. And it's not just on the side of conservatives or the right wing, but you make the point that it really is a both sides, that we can find both liberals, neoliberals and neoconservatives engaged in some form of Islamophobia. Talk to us about that both sides that you've observed. Absolutely. I think this is one of the biggest misperceptions that some readers will come to the book with. This idea that Islamophobia only exists on the political right. I think sometimes liberals can feel this puffed up sense of superiority thinking, oh, we opposed Trump and his blatant Islamophobia without actually being aware of or reflecting on the fact that many of the stereotypes that undergirded Trump's policies exist in liberal circles as well and also inform democratic or liberal political policies that, you know, happened under the Obama administration or even the current Biden administration. I give some examples in the book, basically saying that some of the most anti-Muslim or stereotypical comments that I have heard people utter were from self-identified liberals, one from California, the other from who worked in New York City, your typical kind of middle-aged New York Times reading, you know, they saw themselves as very educated, very worldly and yet they were still holding on to particularly the idea that Muslim men were a threat to not just Muslim women, but to women everywhere. And that's, I think, really harmful and also just untrue. I mean, it does not comport with my experience. It's not to say that misogyny is not a problem in many Muslim majority contexts, just as it's a problem in many Western contexts, too. But to go back kind of to the political part of this, I, I talk about some policies under the Obama administration that are these kind of more subtle manifestations of Islamophobia, one of them being this program called CVE or Countering Violent Extremism, which was from its name, you think, oh, this is an innocuous counterterrorism program. But basically, it focused on domestic Muslim communities and trying to criminalize effectively practices and beliefs that should be covered by people's First Amendment rights. So basically, CVE operated under the premise that if Muslims are becoming more religious, if they're praying more often, if they have certain kinds of political views, if they're critical of the U.S. government, that these are all reasons why community leaders should report young people to law enforcement as potential terrorism suspects, even though no one is alleged to have committed any sort of crime. So these things have persisted under democratic administrations too. And it's important to recognize that they're all stemming from this same assumption that Muslims are inherently suspect and that they have to prove to us their innocence before we can trust them. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you here. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jordan Denari Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University. We've had her on the show before to talk about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Made Me a Better Catholic. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Well, a moment ago, you mentioned the Obama program, CVE, Countering Violent Extremism. One of the things that struck me in your book, Islamophobia, was under the auspices of the CVE program, 
those who were community leaders who were doing things like anti-poverty efforts. They were feeding people, but they were being targeted as potential cells for Muslim radicalization. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So to clarify, that example that I give in the book was not connected to the CVE program, but it, it is a symptom of this same broader problem, which is law enforcement getting involved in ordinary Muslims' lives for unjust reasons. So yeah, I tell this story in the book of an acquaintance of mine, Esed Dandia, who ran a Muslim charity group as a college student in New York City. And he tells a story of how this young man joined their charity organization, got involved with the group, was helping feed the poor, going to the mosque with them, joining in all these activities, which for the Muslims involved were an expression of their Muslim faith, this idea that our religiosity needs to express itself by helping our neighbors, whether or not they're Muslim. And a few months into this new member having joined the group, he finds out that this young man was an informant that was sent in by the New York Police Department to infiltrate this group, to spy on the group, to report back on the group's activities. And this was part of a broader program that the NYPD was operating at the time called the Muslim Mapping Program, where spies were sent into Muslim communities, Muslim cafes, Muslim-owned businesses, mosques, all over the New York City area to spy on Muslims. You know, again, under this false perception that being Muslim is an inherent threat to the rest of our society. And we've seen the NYPD wasn't the only uh, law enforcement agency that was doing this. We've seen many cases of this around the country where informants don't simply go into these groups to spy on them, but they also try to stir up trouble. Um, I tell one story in the book, and I'm chuckling not because it's funny, but really how ridiculous it is, where someone infiltrated a mosque community in California and the existing congregants started to become concerned because this new convert was espousing all of these really kind of violent ideas and talking about wanting to commit some kind of act of terrorism. And so the Muslim community reports him to law enforcement only to find out that he was sent by law enforcement in the first place to stir up trouble and to lure other people into doing something that could then be prosecuted on terrorism charges. So I brought all of these things up in the book because unfortunately, they weren't being, I mean, there were things I knew about because of the research that I was doing, but particularly in the Christian circles that I'm writing for, these forms of Islamophobia are not on people's radar. Well, one of the things that this stirs up for me is I watched the Supreme Court with some regularity, and we've had a slew of cases in the last few years around this idea of religious liberty. And I think if you were to ask average citizens what their idea of religious liberty would be, Having law enforcement infiltrating your houses of worship, trying to stir up trouble and spying on adherents of a particular faith would not be reflective of religious liberty. So how does religious liberty factor into this when you have what seems like a very hostile institutional approach towards Islam by organizations like law enforcement, by things like the Muslim ban? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think it's a religious liberty issue. And I think that particularly in the kind of Catholic circles that I run in, we need to expand our understanding of what religious liberty is and whose religious liberty is actually being threatened right now. And it's not even just these institutional forms of discrimination that we're talking about, but even people being able to safely attend their houses of worship without 
fear of being harmed. I've been watching a lot of the news out of Canada recently where there have been a slew of anti-Muslim attacks and people killed and violently assaulted. And a number of people have said, I don't feel comfortable going to the mosque anymore. I don't feel comfortable wearing my headscarf in public because I don't want to be attacked. That's the most fundamental, I think, religious liberty issue, religious freedom issue. And so one of the things that I try to do in the book is to help readers to see that reality. And I draw on some of the the teachings that came out of the Second Vatican Council, and particularly the Religious Liberty Declaration, Dignitatis Humanae, which talks about religious liberty and how we, even if we're not the targets of this kind of discrimination, that we actually have a responsibility to make sure that people are not coerced by the government to abandon their religious beliefs or practices, or that the broader society isn't creating a situation where people feel uncomfortable to live out their religious faith. Well, and you deal with this briefly in your book, Islamophobia, but I'd love to to hear about it in the context of what you've just said, because if you were to go to some Christians, and this is not just true of Catholics, but I've also heard this sentiment from evangelicals and from others, sometimes I hear the phrase, well, Islam's not really a religion. It's a culture or it's a political force, but they're trying to define away the religiosity of Islam. And I'd, I'd love to get some of your insight and thoughts into that. Yeah, I, I, as you said, I do talk about this a little bit in the book. That kind of a claim can, I think, only be really understood when we look at the history of the category of religion in the first place and how many Western Christians, particularly Protestants, have come to understand religion as this sort of private affair, that it's really easy for us to tell, to make a distinction between private religion and then living in a quote unquote, secular way in the public sphere. But part of what I you know, want to do in the book is to problematize that divide. That, that understanding of religion as a private affair really only happened after the wars between Catholics and Protestants in Europe and the Enlightenment. That conception, I don't think, really matches reality. And as you say, it also, when people make that claim that Islam isn't a religion, it completely ignores the fact of Muslim religiosity or Muslim spirituality or the fact that Muslims have a relationship with God may be different, may be similar to our own. But yeah, I think so much of, and this is an argument that I make in the book, I think so much of our problematic ways of thinking about Islam and Muslims also stem from a problematic way of thinking about religion and a lack of awareness of the fact that our modern or contemporary notions of religion are actually fairly new and that for so much of human history, people didn't see a huge distinction between what I do on Sunday and how I live the rest of my life. As someone who's Catholic, I feel like my faith should impact how I live. My Catholicism should be a way of life. So when people say that Islam isn't to religion, it's a way of life, I'm like, okay, that's fine. (laughs) And I don't think it should be seen as threatening. I want to stick with this for one moment and try something out and see what you think of it. So in talking about this in your book, one of the things that you do is you highlight, particularly from Catholics, but also there are evangelicals and folks from the Orthodox faith as well, who are really committed to a certain type of narrative about Christianity over against any other religion. And so 
I'm going to try this out. From my reading, it seemed if I were to ask them, they would say, yes, religious liberty is there to protect me converting you to Christianity, because Christianity is the true religion, and therefore religious liberty means being able to proselytize the true religion. But any other religious expression should not have legal protection. Now, when I characterize it that way, that's just from my reading and my anecdotal evidence. You've done a lot more research on this. Am I on to something, or would you say it in a different way? Oh, I, I think you're on to something. And interestingly, so I took a course in my graduate studies on ethnic and religious minorities in the Middle East. And we read some really interesting work on international religious freedom efforts abroad or in the Middle East. And the concern among, you know, Westerners and Western Christians who wanted to push for religious freedom in the Middle East, it wasn't so that necessarily that everyone could be whatever religion they wanted. It was so that they had more of an opportunity to proselytize and to spread their version of the truth. And I think we have to recognize that is often the agenda that unfortunately underlies some of what I would call like the religious freedom industry in Washington, D.C. in particular. I'm really heartened by the fact that not everyone sees it that way. And there are an increasing number of Christians and Muslims and Jews and others who are trying to reclaim the religious freedom mantle and actually use it for what it's for, which is to allow everyone to have the freedom to live how they want to live, to choose how they want to believe, and to not simply use religious freedom as a bludgeon to get our way in the culture wars or to be able to proselytize to new potential converts. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University and is an associate of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University's Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. We've talked to her on the show before about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
We're speaking today with Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, and she's an associate of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University's Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. We've had her on the show before to talk about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Well, in this conversation, we've followed the flow of your book. In other words, the first two parts of our conversation have really mapped out big parts of the problem, the legal aspects, the cultural aspects, the ideological aspects of anti-Muslim sentiment. But one of the things that I was really struck by in your book, Islamophobia, is that you don't leave it there. You go into the Catholic tradition, into the Christian tradition, and really mine that tradition for positive suggestions about what readers and in my case, listeners can do not only to combat Islamophobia when they encounter it, but also to really begin to deal with some of the effects of Islamophobia that may be deeply embedded in their own biases and in their own psyches. And I'd like to spend a few minutes talking with you about that. So let's start maybe with some of the, the resources that you went to in the Catholic tradition to begin to look for ways to suggest to the reader that they could find ways to combat their own internalized Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I do in that section is look at the Good Samaritan story, which is very well known to Christians of all stripes. And I retell the story thanks to the the prompting of a local Catholic priest in Indianapolis who reframed the Good Samaritan story as the Good Muslim story, where he, the protagonist in the story was a contemporary Muslim who helps a poor man on the road in in Indianapolis who has previously been ignored by a Catholic priest and someone else who works for the church. And oftentimes the Good Samaritan story is invoked in Christian circles to say, oh, we need to do good for others. We need to do good for strangers who, you know, who are having a rough time. This retelling of the story really drives home. And and Pope Francis also talks about this too in his, you know, exegesis of the story is that it, what the story does is tries to make us see the Samaritan or the Muslim in this case differently. In Jesus's time, Samaritans were a religious other. In our own time, Muslims are the religious other. And sometimes we wrongly assume that they don't have the capacity to do good, or we're so used to seeing them as this opponent and seeing ourselves as the virtuous ones that we forget that oftentimes the religious other can fulfill our religious duties and our religious calling better than we can. And that's the power, I think, of that story and this retelling of it where we realize that we sometimes aren't as virtuous as we claim to be and Muslims aren't aren't always as bad as we imagine them to be. And that taking off those rose-colored glasses and being a little bit more even-handed in how we view the other, I think can be a starting point for uncovering some of the stereotypes that we might hold on to about Muslims and those biases that we don't often want to admit to, but that unfortunately have embedded themselves in us. Well, you mentioned a biblical story. You also go back to real kind of important documents, particularly of the Catholic Church coming out of the Second Vatican Council. And I'm a Catholic as well, and learning about some of these documents was news to me. So I'd love if you could give us a quick overview of some of the kind of official documents of one of the major Christian denominations on the planet about how they're talking about relations with the Muslim faith. Yeah, so 
Vatican II was in the 1960s was a really um, important moment because it was the first time that the Catholic Church as an institution said anything positive about Muslims. And that was in two separate documents. The one I'll mention first was published later, but it's important to mention first. One of the documents is Nostra Etate, which means in our time. And it was all about the church's relationship to other religious traditions. And it has an entire paragraph on Muslims and their faith. And it points out many of the similarities religiously that Catholics and Muslims share. So, you know, a belief in the one God who is merciful and just and will judge us at the end of time, a commitment to prayer, fasting and almsgiving, and also a reverence for Jesus and Mary, these figures that are important in both communities. But I think the most important part of Nostra Aetate's statement on Muslims is the first line, which just says, the Catholic Church holds Muslims in high regard, or an alternate translation could be, the Catholic Church has high respect for Muslims, period. And it's such an important, that maybe on the face of it doesn't seem that groundbreaking, but to me what it says is that our default attitude towards Muslims as Catholics isn't meant to be one of hostility or suspicion. It's not even meant to be one of neutrality, but it's one of a deep respect almost an assumption that we share things and that because we're members, we all are members of the human family, that our default stance towards this community is one of openness and love and welcome, despite the fact that our communities haven't always had the best relations with each other. So that's something that I, I try to draw out. And, and I also want to say the fact of that statement of the church's attitude towards Muslims it stands in such stark contrast to the Islamophobia that we often see perpetuated in Catholic circles. And I talk in the book about the United States at length. And that's just what really disappoints me because the official stance of the church is so different from the one that is often the reality in this country and in other places. The other document that Muslims are mentioned in is Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church, one of the most important documents of the Second Vatican Council. And that's also where the church reiterates that, quote, the plan of salvation includes Muslims who, together with us, adore the one God. And growing up in Catholic school, assumed that we Catholics were like a lot of Protestants I knew who believed that everyone who wasn't Christian was going to hell. And what this document helped me realize is that the Catholic Church actually has uh, a much more ambiguous and open sense of who can be saved and also is recognizing the fact that even though we may believe different things about God than Muslims or that we may affirm or reject different things about God theologically, that ultimately our two communities are oriented toward the worship of the one God. And I think we can see that in the ways that so many Muslims live out their lives. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University. We've had her on the show before to talk about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. We're speaking today about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. 
One of the things that you also talk about very frankly in that third section of your book, the final section of your book, where you're giving this kind of constructive, hopeful vision for how Christians can more effectively engage with Islamophobia to help to route out Islamophobia, you talk about your own internalized biases. And I think that's important for my listeners to hear. If you could share uh, one or two kind of stories of your own wrestling with Islamophobia, I think that would be helpful. Absolutely. So I'll begin by saying that so many of us have really good intentions, are working really hard to combat discrimination in our world. And then we're really discouraged or troubled to find at certain moments that we still hold on to a lot of these biases or stereotypes ourselves. And I've had a a number of moments of this when it comes to Islamophobia. So when I was living abroad in the country of Jordan some years ago, I was doing Arabic homework in the home of my host family. And all of a sudden, I heard a man yelling through a megaphone out the window. He was speaking in Arabic very quickly, very emphatically. To me, he sounded very angry. And this was during the period of the Arab Spring in 2012, when many movements across the Middle East were advocating for revolution and things like that. And so I assumed that this guy wanted some kind of political or religious overthrow of the Jordanian government and was concerned and scared about what I was hearing. I had studied Arabic, but I didn't know the dialect that's spoken in Jordan very well. So I asked my host mom, who was walking by my room, I said, who is that guy? What is he saying? It's freaking me out. And uh, she said, oh, that's a guy who's... um." just selling produce out of the back of his pickup truck throughout the neighborhood. He was yelling through the megaphone about bananas and zucchini and tomatoes and the deals of the day. And in that moment, I felt smacked in the face with these stereotypes that I apparently had or these perceptions that were so embedded in me from the way that Islam and Muslims in the Middle East had been covered in the U.S. media that I I wasn't able to even fathom in that initial moment that this guy could be yelling for some totally relevant, innocuous, uh, good reason. And uh, to me, it goes to show that, well, and I should say at this point in my young adulthood, I'd already been studying Islam. I had lived with Muslim roommates. I had I was already actively concerned about rooting out Islamophobia from, from my community. And yet I, I was still driven by some of these latent stereotypes myself. And so it goes to show, I think, that despite our best intentions, we can be purveyors of Islamophobia without even meaning to be. And, you know, how many times I wonder, have I been operating out of an an Islamophobic stereotype and not recognized it? That's the thing is that we often don't recognize when our actions or our thoughts are informed by these stereotypes. I tell another story in the book about feeling really uncomfortable one time in the mall, walking by a woman who was wearing a full, like this long black dress and a face veil. And uh, I I noticed my body seize up and I felt nervous, like she was going to do something or that that she was a threat or disrupting the norms of the society that I live in. And I, I was writing about this as I was finishing the book in the summer of 2020, when I every time I was going into the mall or going into the store during that time, I was covering my face too because it was the coronavirus pandemic. And to me, it just it, it goes to show how often irrational our fears are about the other. We have to, I think, do the hard work of learning about these stereotypes so that we can try to locate them in ourselves and try to uproot them. 
What strikes me about both of those stories, and this really rang out to me so clearly in your book, Islamophobia. So you talked about the man selling produce there in Jordan, and he was literally just trying to make his way in the world. He was trying to share what we all need, food. He was saying, come buy my food and help me to make a living for my family. And yet we put these filters on where we reinterpret those very basic human shared activities of, I'm just trying to survive and provide for my family. I'm just trying to have a life like everyone wants a life. And we put all these narratives on it of horror and violence. And it really comes down to we're looking at people who look different from us, who are maybe in a distant land from us, and we're telling their stories for them instead of listening to their stories. And so as we come to the conclusion of our conversation and are winding things down, I want to ask you about the power of listening. Like when we are thinking about this as people who are coming from a religious faith, in your case, in my case, from the Catholic faith, what is our obligation to listen to these stories, to listen to our religious others. What is the power of listening here? Yeah, I think so much of, not all of the problem of Islamophobia, but so much of the problem of Islamophobia could be solved through that kind of listening that you're talking about. I think so often the image of Islam, as you said, that we have is one that's fed to us by people who are not Muslim or who don't represent the majority of Muslims. But I often encourage people and I'm going to encourage my students in the fall because I'm going to be teaching a course on Islam to really listen to what Muslims are saying about their relationship with God, about their beliefs, about why they practice the way they do, about why they live their lives the way they do. Because so often it does not comport with the stereotypes that that we receive. Yes, I think that listening is really important. It's clear to me also, this book is amazingly researched. It's capacious. It's full of information. It really makes the case again and again. But it also strikes me, particularly when I came to the end of the book, how hopeful this book is. You are looking and you're finding the best in Islam. You're finding the best in your Catholic faith. And you're expecting the best from your readers. That's just clear to me. But I, I have to wonder, where is the source of this hope? What is it that keeps you hopeful in the midst of what is, in many cases, an onslaught, not only of an industry of Islamophobia, but also our own internalized Islamophobia? How can you be hopeful, Jordan Duffner? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think for a couple of reasons. One, because I have seen this work pay off. I have talked to numerous people who have said, I used to think a certain way or feel a certain way about Muslims, and I realized that was wrong, and I need to do better, or I need to be different. There have been cases of, of changes of heart and transformation where people who maybe even proudly would have considered themselves Islamophobes realize that that's not consonant with what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a, a person of faith or a person of goodwill. So that's part of it, just realizing that this kind of slow and steady work can make a difference. The other thing too, and, and this is this gets to the the end of the book, is that I think our faith as Catholics, as Christians, calls us to it. And, you know, I end the book by talking about the kingdom of God. And I think the obligation of Christians to live in this kind of liminal space between the fact that the kingdom is already here in a sense, but it also isn't here yet. The already but not yet of the kingdom of God, that we 
somehow are able to see glimpses of God's reign when we work for justice, when we try to build societies that are based around love and hospitality. We get glimpses of what the kingdom looks like when we do that. At the same time, as you say, we know we are nowhere near that in its fullness. But I think we are called, we have an obligation to live in that middle point. And I I think God has high expectations of us, but knows that in many cases we can make inroads on that path that God has laid out for us. So that's some of where I get the hope, I guess. So a lot of my listeners are persons of faith. And one of the dangers that you highlight in the book is the fact that when a person with all the best intentions, wants to go and learn more about Islam, sometimes they're going to encounter people from their own faith traditions that have this kind of Islamophobic agenda. You mentioned Robert Spencer as one example from the Catholic tradition, but they're they're all out there. Even if you're a secular person, someone like Bill Maher might still be giving you kind of erroneous information about Islam. And so if a person has been inspired by this conversation to begin to learn more about Islam because they don't know much about it, are there a couple of uh, beginning resources that you would recommend that they go to for information, maybe from a faith standpoint or from a secular standpoint, that would not fall into this kind of Islamophobia industry trap that you highlight so well in your book? Yeah, there are countless Muslim individuals on social media and in mainstream media who I could point people to. I think more than any one specific resource, I I would just recommend that people try to expose themselves to a diverse array of Muslim perspectives and experiences. And that's why social media can be such a powerful and helpful tool in all of this, whether it's Muslim college students who are on social media or scholars who do public facing work or actors, things like that. I'm really excited. This doesn't exactly maybe answer your question, but I'm really excited about the work of the actor Riz Ahmed, who is British. And he and a number of other Muslims, some of whom are also actors, are doing this project to try to facilitate better representation of Muslims in Western media. Because as we've alluded to so far, often the portrayal of Muslims, not just in the news, but also in entertainment media, it doesn't match reality, but is often tinged with with these sorts of stereotypes. One thing that I would maybe caution people about who are interested to learn more about Islam is some people think, oh, the first thing I should do is go and read the Quran. But they don't have any sense of how the Quran is interpreted by Muslims, how it is used in Muslim ritual, the kind of all of the different ways that the Quran as not just as words and as a content affects Muslims, but just the presence of the word of God in your midst, whether it's this book that you're holding or you're hearing the Quran recited at a Friday prayer service. I think when we say, oh, well, let me just go read the Holy Scripture of another faith tradition, we're actually taking like a Protestant, kind of your stereotypical Protestant Christian approach to the Quran that I can approach this text. And from my own plain text reading, I can understand what Muslims take away from this text. And that's not the case. Many people from my own community who are going to go and read the Quran are going to read it through the lens of the stereotypes that they already have. You know, so what I would say is if you want to read the Quran, Talk to Muslims in your community about it and what it means to them. That's, I don't think we should overly burden our Muslim friends by saying, please dialogue with us or please teach us about your religion. But there are so many ways that we can actually learn from Muslims about what their faith means to them. And only then should we be making our judgments about Islam, not when we've just casually gone through their holy scripture with our stereotypes in mind. Well, Jordan Denary Duffner, 
I learned so much from you every time that you're on the show. It was a delight to talk to you about your previous book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims. But I'm, I'm just also delighted to watch your project grow. And this is such a natural extension of this. This book, Islamophobia, taught me a great deal. And I'm going to be sharing this with my students and with my friends, even some folks in my family. Thank you so much for the time that it took to write this book and the work that you put into it. But thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, David. It was great to talk to you. We've been speaking today with Jordan Denary Duffner. She's pursuing a doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, and she's an associate at the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University's Center for Muslim and Christian Understanding. We talked to her previously on the show about her book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. We've been speaking today about her recent book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.